Welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events, focusing on working people and the labor movement to the Madison area and the surrounding communities. I'm Jimmy Coonan. I'm a member of the Carpenters and Joiners of America, Local 314. Your support in any amount helps make Labor Radio and all the great programming on WART possible. Hi there, I'm Anna Ham, and while I haven't been in a union, I've been in a union cab many times, and it's always been a great experience. This week, we'll discuss the end of the strike at John Deere, get funky with VO5 and the UW nurses, get the latest on Wisconsin's redistricting maps, share an update on the strike against Kellogg's, learn how West Coast workers are taking on Kaiser Permanente, talk about the holiday fantasy and lights, and area tradition, share the latest COVID report, and much more. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining supporter of WORT and Labor Radio. After a month and five days on the picket line, unionized workers at Deere and Company returned to the factory floors across the country on Wednesday. Labor Radio's Sean Haggery reports on contract that ended the strike. 10,000 workers at John Deere voted to ratify the third in a series of contract offers negotiated with the company this Wednesday. The contract was ratified by a margin of 61% yes votes to 39% no votes. Union members were scheduled to return to shifts as early as Wednesday evening, after the results had been tallied. While the strike was ongoing, it was the largest in the country and spanned five states, including Kansas, Illinois, Iowa, Georgia, and Colorado. The strikers, who are represented by the United Auto Workers, walked off the job site on October 14th after their previous contract had expired. Fighting through the cold, court injunctions, and multiple votes, Union members and community supporters held the line against the company for a better offer. Workers wrought several concessions from the agricultural implement manufacturer in the final ratified contract, as compared to the initial proposals offered by the company. Under the terms of the new contract, union members will receive an immediate 10% raise, along with an $8,500 bonus. Over the lifetime of the contract, members' wages will increase 20%, along with the reinstatement of cost of living adjustments. Another change to the most recent contract offer was a tweak to a complex formula used to calculate weekly bonuses for workers on the factory floor, if they exceeded their assigned production quotas. With the tweak, workers will have the potential to earn a higher weekly salary, though the system does not cover all UIW employees. A key motivation in initiating the strike among UIW locals in October was the addition of a new tier in early contract proposals. A tier system had already been institutionalized in DEER contracts stretching back to 1997. With the existing system, employees were divided into two groups, with some receiving post-retirement health care and some not. The proposed third tier would have further divided unionized employees, completely eliminating pensions for those hired after November 1st of this year. While the ratified contract did not completely eradicate the tier system, it did succeed in blocking the addition of the third tier. Quote, 
UAW John Deere members did not just unite themselves. They seemed to unite the nation in a struggle for fairness in the workplace, said UAW President Ray Curry. Quote, we could not be more proud of these UAW members and their families. Wisconsin AFL-CIO President Stephanie Bloomingdale also said in a statement responding to the ratification, quote, there is power in a union. Congratulations to all of the UAW members at John Deere and all their families who sacrificed and held the line to make this achievement possible. The UAW John Deere strike captured the nation's attention and will inspire other workers across our country to stand up and stand together for fairness, dignity, and respect at work. Reporting for Labor Radio, I'm Sean Hagerup. The Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act passed both houses of the legislature and signed into law by President Biden on Monday. The legislation provides funding for infrastructure, Amtrak, bridges, roads, clean drinking water, internet access, and clean energy options. Labor Radio's Ellen LaLuzerne spoke with Kevin Gundlach, president of South Central Federation of Labor, about the bill's impact on labor. What is your reaction to how the bill will impact union members and working people? Well, this bill is really going to provide a broad, comprehensive investments to improve our bridges, our roads, you know, our infrastructure. So much of it is really old, and, and this is going to really improve that. And it's also going to provide broadband to areas that need it. And by doing so, this these incredible investment into our communities, we're going to have some good paying jobs that are also needed, bringing good jobs. And and we're going to see those being union jobs with good pay, good benefits, and, you know, say in your, your workplace. The legislation includes investments in high-speed internet and broadband infrastructure. It also includes a plan to lower costs for low-income people. Why is this so important? A lot of areas in our state, including southwestern Wisconsin and other rural areas, they don't have broadband. They don't have access to good internet, if internet at all. And so this bill is going to provide a, a very big investment into those areas for those workers. And it's also going to have investments so that low-income Americans can afford it too, and as well as bringing it to our seniors too. All of us have become a little isolated, obviously, during COVID, and they've really thought carefully about helping many people from all walks of life, from our seniors to some of the folks who are, are lower income as well as rural areas. Climate change is an area that's also covered in the plan. This includes investing nearly $1 billion to work on ways to make our infrastructure, quote, more resilient, unquote, to the impacts of climate change and extreme weather events. Tell me about that. From what I read, they, they have like, I think it's $50 billion for what's called climate resilience and weatherization which includes how to have a proper infrastructure when we see more uh, severe droughts, heat waves, floods, wildfires, clean drinking water. So this bill is really going to provide opportunities for labor, to, to, especially the building and construction trades, to work on projects that really will deal with a climate-related investments. And providing a the largest investment is providing for clean energy and grid-related investments. And, and the, all those things that need to be built are going to be built with our building and construction trades. So, and and we're, they're going to be needing to hire more people, too. So we're going to see better paying jobs for more people. Do you have any final thoughts? Well, I just want to say, let's not forget the upcoming bills that labor is really supporting and many of our allies. The first is the reconciliation bill or the Build Back Better plan. But there's also the voting rights bill that's coming up. There's also the PRO Act that we have been really invested in. And finally, there's going to be another bill similar to the PRO Act that will 
basically one element of it is to reverse Act 10. So we have all these bills that are coming up in Congress, and we can't forget to keep fighting for all those for, for working people. That was Kevin Gunlock, president of the South Central Federation of Labor. I'm Ellen LaLazerne for Labor Radio. VO5 joined the UW healthcare workers and performed at the High Noon Saloon on Wednesday in a COVID-safe performance. Wednesday evening, nurses at the UW hospital and their supporters wore face masks and brought proof of vaccination to the High Noon Saloon. They came to get funky with the popular disco funk band VO5 and support healthcare workers at UW Health who want recognition for their union from the hospital board. The nurse's voice through the union will improve patient care, say supporters. Shari Sickner spoke about why she came to the high noon Wednesday night. I'm a nurse at UW Hospital, and I've been a nurse uh, for 15 years and have been an employee for 18. We are here to thank the community uh, for all of the support that they've given us in this fight to try to get the union back at the hospital. It's been clear to us for many years that UW Hospital needs the nurses to have a voice again to really be able to make the changes necessary in the hospital to improve patient care, to uh, get better staffing ratios, nurse to patient staffing ratios. And so we just wanted to thank everyone for all their hard work and to continue helping us with this fight. Organizers have reached out to the UW board and they are ready to do more. Our authority board has actually said that they would not meet with us on the last time we requested it. And so uh, we're very close to a majority of nurses that have signed on to say that they do want to have a union. So as soon as we get that, we'll be formally addressing the board again. Informally, we have been um, trying to reach out to individual board members to try to connect with them one-on-one. Yes, we'll still be around. After the crowd gathered, the nurses thanked VO5. So again, thank you for everybody who's coming, and thank you to VO5. Good evening, everybody. Okay. UW nurses united as supporters to post a photo to social media using the hashtag at UW Health. They encourage supporters to speak from the heart about why the UW is important to the community and nurses need a voice to advocate for their patients. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. Janine Ramsey reports on Wisconsin's legislative redistricting maps. In the latest news on Wisconsin's legislative maps, Governor Tony Evers vetoed Senate Bill 621, a bill passed by the Republican-controlled state Senate that sets the political maps for the next decade. Wisconsinites from all over the state emphatically voiced their unanimous opposition to the SB 621 maps at the one hearing on the issue in October. In nine hours of testimony, not one person spoke in favor of the proposed maps. The nonpartisan Princeton Gerrymandering Project 
gave the SB 621 maps an F grade for partisan fairness and indicated that the maps gave Republicans a significant advantage. Despite strong and vocal public support for fair, nonpartisan maps, SB 621 passed the Wisconsin Senate on a party-line vote on November 8th. It was sent to the governor's office on November 16th. Governor Evers referred to the maps in SB 621 as gerrymandering 2.0 and vetoed the bill as he had promised to do if the maps were not revised. Barring a Republican veto overturn, the maps will now go to the courts. The federal courts have agreed to wait to see what the conservative-leaning Wisconsin Supreme Court decides first. In Wisconsin, the federal courts have historically resolved redistricting disputes and drawn maps. Listeners can find out more information and get involved by going to the Wisconsin Fair Maps Coalition website. This is Janine Ramsey reporting for Labor Radio. In a recent trend in labor militancy, union members are rebelling against contracts that impose division among workers. Reporter Sean Hagerup explores one case in this tiered system at Kellogg's in the context of their ongoing strike. Workers at the Kellogg Company are continuing to fight against the renewal of the tiered benefit system for its unionized employees as their strike extends into its sixth week. These 1,400 factory workers, represented by the bakery, confectionery, tobacco workers, and Green Millers International Union, stretch across four states, including Michigan, Nebraska, Pennsylvania, and Tennessee. Under these tier systems, companies agree to maintain certain pay rates and benefits for employees hired before a certain date, but gradually scale back those benefits for employees hired later. A 2008 study of collective bargaining agreements found that 25% of all contracts enforced across the country include some form of tier system. At Kellogg's, Contract offer after contract offer in the most recent negotiation cycle has maintained the tier system with slight adjustments, a concession that the BCTGM says is unacceptable for its membership. Quote, Kellogg's continues to insist on takeaways. The company came to the table insisting that there will only be an agreement if the union accepts the company proposal exactly as it has been written. These terms and conditions are unacceptable to our members, said Dan Osborne president of BCTGM Local 50G in Omaha. Employees are still on the picket line looking for Kellogg's to eliminate their two-tier pay and benefit system, along with making it easier for employees to reach legacy status so that all employees can be paid equally. Another notable example in recent contract fights over tiered plans was at Deere & Company, where 10,000 workers were able to avoid the institution of more tiers in their ratified contract, though the system in its current form remains. The Kellogg Company says its final offer raised the wages and benefits for all employees and that they would work to eliminate that two-tier system. However, the union says that Kellogg's was unwilling to provide a fully benefited way to achieve this goal. According to the bargaining team, the company has yet to schedule any further negotiating sessions. Reporting for Labor Radio, I'm Sean Hagerup. The International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, or IATSE, has averted a strike and now has a contract. Labor Radio reporter Ellen LaLuzerne has the info on the outcome. After narrowly averting a strike, 
the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, or IATSE, ratified a new three-year basic agreement and an area standards agreement, both narrowly passed with a majority yes vote. In total, 56% of the delegates voted for the basic and area standard agreements. Those agreements cover roughly 60,000 film and TV workers. The basic agreement covers 13 Hollywood locals, and the area standards agreement affects 23 locals that are outside of the Los Angeles area. The contract vote follows lengthy and contentious negotiations that began in May. A strike vote was taken in October, and 98% of the membership voted to authorize a walkout. The walkout threat helped move the negotiations towards a settlement. The contract settlement includes 3% annual pay increases, daily 10-hour turnarounds for everyone, and 54- and 32-hour weekend rest periods. The agreement also establishes a joint union management agreement to study the long-term viability of the union's health and pension plans. Ongoing discussions were also agreed to regarding union members' missing meal periods. Diversity, equity, and inclusion programs and equity-focused training programs were also outlined in the agreement. The narrow yes vote reflects division among IATSE members who were divided on the details. Some touted the gains on turnaround time and wage increases, while others said the results were unsatisfactory and they needed more dramatic changes. The recent death of director of photography and local 600 member Helena Hutchins on the set of Russ is cited as the reason for some locals' no votes. Unions are working together to stand up to West Coast healthcare giant Kaiser Permanente. Greg Jabowski reports. Labor power showed its strength against one of the giants of the healthcare industry this week. The tens of thousands of workers of Kaiser Permanente, centered in Hawaii and on the West Coast, but also active in Colorado, Georgia, and the Washington, D.C. area, just a tentative deal with the hospital titan on Saturday, without any apparent givebacks. The unions involved, all part of the 52,000-strong Alliance of Healthcare Unions, spread over 22 locals, were celebrating across-the-board wage increases, staffing increases, retention of medical and other benefits at current levels, and, in an important move away from recent history, fought back what the unions saw as an attempt by Kaiser Management to institute a two-tier employee compensation structure. These multi-tiered systems have been used to drive down wages over time and to strike at union solidarity and have been sticking points in other labor actions, notably the recent actions at Kellogg's and John Deere. But it looks like union power did not stop there. Kaiser has been on strike since September, with the 700 or so members of International Union of Operating Engineers, IUOE, Local 39 in Northern California. And according to charges filed by the union, Kaiser has not been bargaining in good faith. So other unions, including the massive SEIU United Healthcare Workers West and the other Kaiser Healthcare Unions there, called a sympathy strike, with their tens of thousands of Northern California workers going off for 24 hours, through yesterday and ending this morning. According to a statement from SEIUUHW, quote, We cannot allow Kaiser to continue to engage in this anti-worker bullying or else we will face the same when we go back to negotiations in less than two years. For its part, Kaiser complained that it only made $1.3 
billion in revenues over expenses for the third quarter of 2021, falling from $3 billion in the second quarter alone. These revenues were forthrightly turned profits in a November 15th article in the industry trade journal Fierce Healthcare. The nominally not-for-profit Kaiser has the highest executive compensation in the field, with 36 execs making over $1 million a year as of 2017, with compensation of then-CEO Bernard Tyson alone at over $16 million in 2017. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. This year marks the 35th anniversary of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, or IBEW, Local 159, joining with the electrical group to set up the Fantasy and Lights at Olin Park. The group, made up of the Electrical Contractors Association and unions, provide the community with the Holiday Light Show. Lights were turned on last Saturday and will remain lit until January 2nd. Labor Radio's Ellen LaLuzerne spoke with Sue Blue, IBEW Local 159 business manager, and Rebecca Shavi, a third-year apprentice with the local about the union's involvement with putting up the lights. Sue, can you explain a little bit about the tradition of setting up the lights in the park? We put it on for the community as kind of a way that we give back as a seasonal gift. Especially with COVID last year, we saw record numbers of people driving through Olin Park and just enjoying that in a safe environment. What does it take to put the lights on? It's something that takes a lot of preparation to do. Starting in June with our retirees and some other volunteers that help make sure the displays are good to go. The setup takes about two weeks. So like I said, we have over 55 displays this year. Lights go on tomorrow, and then that runs through January 2nd, dusk till dawn. It's a good opportunity for our apprentices to get out there to be part of giving something to the community. Speaking of apprenticeships, Rebecca, you are an apprentice, and did you help work on setting up the displays? This year was a little bit different for me. I did sustain a knee injury, so this year I actually worked with a lot of the retirees. It is a good opportunity, I think, for any apprentice. We are working with our retirees. They're the ones who have been around the longest. They have a never-ending supply of knowledge, but also just to see how much work actually goes into that. And I think people underestimate how much really goes in. But for me, this year was just not being able to do the physical work allowed me to kind of learn a lot more of the actual electrical portion. And it's been a great experience. What does actually go into planning the thing and then putting everything together this year you know they redid a lot of the electrical panels any of the bad strings of lights if sockets are bad they're replacing them I mean, this is months of testing each one of those displays changing things out they redid relays those controllers when there's like a little light show it's programmed i know this year i think they've They have new displays. They've redone some displays. There's always some kind of repairs that need to be done. Stuff gets French or broken. They spend months of welding and restringing lights. Sue, why don't you talk about what might be different with this year's display? Well, I think one thing that they've brought back this year that a lot of people have asked for is they had, for many years, a memory tree. So people could purchase an ornament on there to either remember someone. So that is something that people have missed over the last few years. And I know that they were working on some of the archways, bit of a winter wonderland that people are going to see when they come. Starting in 2009, we went 100% green with LED lights. 
So that saves um, 82% reduction in our energy usage. Do either one of you want to give a shout out to folks to go through the Fantasy and Lights at Olin Park? I definitely would recommend going through kids, no kids, doesn't matter. It's always going to be a good time and it's very festive and good for the holiday spirits. It is a free event. There are exit booths that people can make a donation if they would like, pick up a candy cane and a dog treat. We do get donations. We do give that back into the community by providing this display every year and then by also giving to various community organizations inside of the Madison area. The money that's collected is a joint fund between the Contractors Association and the local union. We'll get requests from different organizations like the UW Burn Center. We do things through that committee, small donations in the community and and larger donations. Today's COVID report includes a business owner's vaccine requirement. Community transmission is high in Dane County. Dane County requires that masks be worn in any enclosed space open to the public where other people are present or while driving or riding in any form of public transportation. Jenna's Lounge, across from the Capitol in Madison, asked for proof of vaccination before entering, as reported by the Wisconsin State Journal. No other bar is known at this time to require proof of vaccination. Owner Christy Jenna said, I know some people will be like, well, we'll never go there again, but you know what? I don't care. We hope this encourages more people to get vaccinated. COVID cases in Dane County increased during this 14-day period ending Sunday, November 21st, with an average of 137 cases per day, and the number of people hospitalized with COVID in Dane County remains stable. Percent positivity was 4.1%. In October 2021, a person not fully vaccinated in Dane County was six times more likely to test positive for COVID, 39 times more likely to be hospitalized for COVID, and 13 times more likely to die from COVID than a fully vaccinated person. Dane County currently has the second lowest case rate and the third lowest positivity rate of all 72 counties in the state. The age-adjusted rate of cases for those not fully vaccinated residents is eight times higher than the rate for fully vaccinated residents. The case rate for people aged 12 to 17 who are not fully vaccinated is 14 times higher than the case rate for fully vaccinated people ages 12 to 17. This is the lowest vaccination rate among all age groups. A cluster of cases indicates two or more cases associated with the same location or event around the same time. 92 unique clusters in Dane County were associated with schools. The ages of the 281 children linked to schools or child care clusters ranged from infancy to 17, with a median age of 9. There were 51 adult staff members, and of those, 41 were fully vaccinated. No students or staff members linked to school or child care clusters were hospitalized for COVID. Public Health is now offering appointments for those age 5 and older at the arena. The site is open Tuesdays through Saturdays. Appointments are recommended. Walk-ins are possible, but availability is not guaranteed. It is not a drive-through site. For those driving, parking is available. If you need help booking an appointment, please call 608-242-6328. Free rides are available to Public Health Madison and Dane County offices for vaccination appointments. To schedule a ride, call 608-243-0420. 
Vaccine locations for everyone can be found by zip code. The website vaccines.gov is the place to start the search. Sources for this story include Public Health Madison in Dane County, the Wisconsin State Journal, and the Wisconsin Department of Health Services. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. Thanks for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm Anna Ham, and I'm headed to Jenna's for a Cosmo. Thanks to editors Frank Emspack and Ellen LaLuzerne, assistant Robin G., reporters Greg Jabowski, Sean Hagerup, Scott McCullough, Janine Ramsey, Tony Reeves, Carol Wydell, and damage control specialist Joanne Powers. Special thanks to Keith Steffen, our reader coordinator, and to all our readers and the members of IBEW and local 2304 WORT Staff Collective. And I'm Jimmy Coonan, and I don't know what bar I'll be going to. But we'd also like to thank our generous contributors and the contributors to Labor Radio and WORT. Please stay tuned for the Blues Cruise with Dave Watts.